Hi, I'm Christine Murray, and welcome to the Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to make places worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings more than the buildings themselves. Hi, my name is Tom Chance. I'm the Chief Executive of the Community Land Trust Network. Uh, as the name implies, we're a network of community land trusts across England and Wales. So we're a charity set up to help that network grow and to try to mainstream the idea of community land trusts, community ownership, land and, and affordable housing. So I'm going to start with the obvious question, which is what is a community land trust? Um, you know, what what are these things and how do they get started and where do they come from? Yep. So the very nuts and bolts Explanation is a community land trust is an organisation that is set up for a particular area, like a town or a village or a bit of a city. And its purpose is to buy land and then and assets for the benefit of that community. And it has to legally think about the long term social, economic and environmental well-being of that community and how those assets are held for that purpose. And the way it's run is that it has to have an open membership so anybody who lives or works in the area can join it and they democratically control it and um, that's quite a sort of a an abstract definition of what a CLT is and it's reflected in law in section 79 of the housing and regeneration act so you can always go and read that for the sort of the more legal de um, description of that principle but basically it's about giving communities a democratic muscle with which they can then engage in the land and property system and most of them have used that to do things like building affordable homes that their community needs or workspace or food growing space or other things that basically, you know, how can we make sure that land is serving the needs of our community? How much do people know about community land trust, do you find? Do you think that, you know, people understand that in their community they could start this thing or, you know, and, and how often, you know, when is the first time that a community might be become aware of them and take the steps necessary to get started? I'm sure if you ask the average person on the street, they'd have no idea what you're talking about. Um, I think in industry, uh, people who work in these sorts of fields, they often most, mostly have heard of the term. They might sometimes slightly misunderstand it. One of the common misconceptions is that they're just about housing because that's what they've sort of majored on or where they've, you know, there's been most energy behind using the concept for. Um, Generally, we've found people who start CLTs, particularly if they're started by communities themselves, are people who are already quite active in their community. They might be involved in a tenants group or in a local transition town or a neighbourhood planning forum or something like that. They're sort of already engaged. And they usually hear about CLTs either from us or press or word of mouth and just realise, oh, this is something we could set up to try to do something we wanted to do anyway. You know, so... We know there's a problem with a lack of affordable housing in our community, or there's this building in the town centre that's just blighting the area, and we could be bringing that back into use. Um, and that's you know that's kind of where some of the energy comes from. But they're also being started now by initiated by landowners and developers and people who want to see this as a tool for embedding community ownership and community participation in things. So they can kind of come from the top down as well as the bottom up. So I hear the words community led, I hear the words, um, you know, community consultation or community engagement. What's the difference between that and a community land trust? Yes, maybe one, one quite nice way to explain it is a model of partnership between community land trusts and housing associations in rural areas. 
So there was some really good practice from rural housing associations doing very good community engagement and consultation. And they worked with the parish council to really try to ensure that at least the parish councillors and other people in that parish are able to feed into the plans for where they're going to put the homes and what they'll look like and so on. Uh, in that, if that's done very well, then obviously that's genuine and not sort of um, just trying to placate the local population. That's genuinely seeing the local local community as having some value to bring in terms of their contributions to those decisions. But the decisions are the basically remain in the hands of the housing association. And the ownership of the homes remains in the house hands of the housing association. If you bring a community land trust into the mix, what changes is that the land becomes owned by the community. The, the community then has a decision-making role because they basically partner with the housing association and it's their choice where the homes go, what they look like, what the affordability is, who the allocation, you know, who, who the homes are allocated to, local priority, things like that. And they then they, they then they are then partners with the housing association rather than consultees. So it's just changing the power structure between the community and the housing association. And if you if you then think about any other sort of circumstance in which communities might have some sort of in, input into the use of land or or development proposals, then it's basically bring them in as an legally incorporated partner with ownership and power beyond having a sort of consultative input. So I'm in a, a community, I see a site or, or, you know, kind of a rundown building, as you said, or I identify this kind of need um, for affordable housing in my neighborhood. And what happens next? How do people get started? One, one thing we've been doing in recent years is building a network of organizations that we call enabler hubs that operate kind of around land and housing market areas um so there's a bit of an alignment with things like local government areas but we know you know these sort of markets <laughs> some sometimes you've got little little quite small market areas like Tees Valley and Middlesbrough which is quite unique and and different to the, to the area surrounding it but anyway these local neighbor organizations are there to help you understand all this stuff and then to handhold you through the whole process and we have worked in partnership with other organizations to roll out a CIH recognized training program for the advisors supporting groups and the idea basically if you were you know if you sort of thought oh, I'm quite interested in doing this in my area you get in touch with the enabler hub for your area and they then then guide you through and sort of open your mind also to maybe you've heard about community land trust but maybe it turns out what you actually want to do is a co-housing community or maybe you want to do something that's a mixture of the two and you know <laughs> or, or, or all these other bits of terminology that your mind will be boggled by over the coming years um now for quite a long time, mostly what you'd then be doing as a CLT is basically setting yourself up as a property developer, trying to find the site, acquire it, get planning permission, get the finance together, contract with builders and so on and do it all yourself. And then gradually we've been able to develop more of an interest and more of a sort of pattern language around how do you partner with other people if you don't want to take on that whole responsibility yourself. So like the Housing Association, for example, in those cases where the CLT is the landowner, the housing association builds, finances, manages the homes, and the community's role is really to bring the, the, the land forward, get the community on board, provide that kind of community input and steward the community's interest long term. And there are sort of other, other forms of partnership with private developers that we're, and, and landowners that we're seeing as well. So 
there's sort of there's there's no simple answer <laughs> as with a lot of these things to what happens next but what happens next is basically figuring out what's important to you and all the different options that exist and how you can best achieve what you're trying to achieve as a community um, given the resources and the input that you want to give and so on our community land trust is competing to kind of purchase land or save land with developers is that and and how big of an issue i mean it seems to me that land and funding would be the biggest barriers um, to them being able to do what they want to do. Yeah, they're, they're definitely land finance and access to expertise are probably the three biggest barriers. Um, the expertise bit is the enabler hubs, that's a bit easier to solve for us. Um, the land and funding, again, it really varies around the country because we've got such a complex set of local localised markets. So in rural England, for instance, CLTs in a lot of parts of the country aren't needing to compete and because of something called the rural exception site they have a way of getting planning permission on sites that mo most generally other developers aren't looking at and in a lot of rural England there's still quite a lot of local landowners who have a connection to the area who have a commitment to it and are willing to sell it at you know whatever multiple of agricultural value for affordable housing rather than 100 200 times uh, for residential value because they know they're never going to get residential value on those those bits of land whereas in cities obviously you know you're, it's highly competitive and basically at the moment CLTs don't really get a look in and so they're very dependent on public land from for example councils that are looking for more social value they want to achieve something that delivers better value for their community than just selling that off to a private developer um, and so there's 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 a growing range of councils developing really interesting policy frameworks around that so my work in a way is, is partly trying to understand and work with our network, understand all these different markets around the country and, and what where are the opportunities that we can create more of an inroad for community land trust to be able to get access to to land and, and other assets. And you know, the answer in Liverpool is going to be very different to the answer in London and very different to the answer in Dorset. <laughs> so it's, it's complicated, but it's 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 really interesting sort of getting an understanding of how all these markets work. So often I'm kind of following your work and you're posting about these amazing net zero developments or eco homes. It, it, is environmental construction a place where um, community land trusts are leading or are there just like a few bright sparks amongst a mix of things that they're doing? What we find is when you give communities the opportunity to say what's important to them, normally affordability is the top consideration and then ecological, environmental, net zero, climate change, all that stuff is, is second. And there's an academic, Tom Archer, who developed this sort of logic model to describe how if, in his view, if communities are given a role in these things, they will push for higher levels of affordability and higher levels of environmental outcome than would be the case otherwise. And so we, I've, I've often, I come across and, you know, I post on LinkedIn about wonderful examples of, of pioneering schemes. And I sometimes think, well, am I just sort of cherry picking <laughs> the nice ones, you know, and, and it's a bit like you look at the development industry generally and there's all these great passive house homes being built around the country. And yet the vast majority of stuff we're building is not very good. <laughs> so, so we, a, a, a year and a half ago, commissioned somebody to take a random sample of CLT schemes and look at what they'd put in, in at least at the planning stage and assess them against what is being required by national policy, what's being required by local policies, where local policies are often a bit more demanding, what are CLTs trying to achieve? And across the board, they were at least meeting and mostly exceeding what was being required. 
which sort of indicated that this was not just cherry picking, that there was a sort of genuine thing here that communities want to, you know, they want homes that ultimately people are going to live in and not have high energy bills in. They're also concerned about climate change. We, are, we all are, you know, we see this in public polling. Um, and if you give communities the opportunity, they will give that a greater priority. I saw in one of your posts that there was also a, a CLT that had, um, I guess, preserved land as well. Is that an increasing thing where it's moving into, I don't know, preserving a piece of um, a green infrastructure, let's say, as opposed to um, affordable house building? Yeah, there's quite, there's quite a few CLTs that do that as well as housing, either because there's some green space within a housing development that they've done, um, or they've, you know, they've had, a, there's sometimes they, you, you get like a slightly weird bit of land off a landowner and you've got a bit left over, so you plant an orchard in it or something. Um, but there is growing interest in that being the starting point. So there's one in Shropshire, which was set up for the Shropshire Hills. It's an area of outstanding natural beauty. And there's these two big landowners, uh, National Trust and Natural England, and they manage their big tracts of land for ecology as well as the local you know local economy and then in between there's this patchwork of private landowners and it's very mixed and so the CLTs basically set out to say we want to buy up all the land in between and work with the landowners that won't sell to us or haven't you know in the meantime to try to improve practice across the whole area and we're kind of as ever in this regard following in the on the coattails of our friends in America because the CLT concept comes from the United States and there the first CLT was an agricultural co-op and there's much more, particularly in places like, because of the sort of weird politics of it, Vermont, where, you know, the idea that really CLTs are there to acquire land for a whole range of uses and then think, well, how is this land being used for the benefit, like the long-term sustainability of our community? And that brings in conservation, farming, rewilding, buildings, <laughs> anything that can go on land. So we're seeing that kind of interest growing. Um, in the UK as well. And you definitely see it in Scotland with big community land buyouts as well. So I want to ask about financing then, because obviously if you're going to be negotiating with landowners or you're going to be doing these kind of big buyouts, who is financing the projects? Like you said, sometimes there's philanthropy on the part of the landowner, but really how are these groups raising um, the capital they need? I mean, it's, it's hugely difficult for any new market entrant in the UK, you know, we have an extremely concentrated development industry that's get, has become ever more concentrated with every economic cycle. Um, basically, every, every recession kicks out a load of SMEs and they never return. Um, and so it's a structural problem with our market that's not exclusive to community land trusts. It's equally difficult for any other kind of company trying to get into this marketplace. And we're really talking about risk capital. Like how do you go out and start negotiating with a landowner get an option agreement, do the work to get planning permission to then be able to access finance. Because if you go to a bank right at the start of the process, <laughs> they'll just send you straight away packing. Whereas if you go to them and say, well, we've got a site secured, we've got an option on it, or we've got an ownership or an MOU, and we've got planning permission, and we've got, you know, we've got a, a financial model that shows how we can make a profit on this development, then you can get lending. And CLTs have particularly got lending from, a, from the sort of more ethical finance end of things. So lenders like Ecology Building Society and Triodos, who both also supported us as an organisation, they'll give that lending. And the challenge has always been, well, how do you get to that point? And so we've relied on a variety of things, like there are social investors like Resonance and CAF Venturesome who have tried to structure funds to provide finance for that very risky early stage. We've had on and off 
government putting money in through the community housing fund which has been hugely valuable in giving communities that opportunity to get to that point and I mean in spite of this difficulty we've got something like 12,000 homes in projects in the pipeline that are very realistic and it's the same again in kind of slightly more hazy early stage projects so there's a lot of, there's you know a decent amount of stuff coming through that is managing by hook or crook to get the finance to do that and um, the other bit of the finance puzzle is then if you have a development partner that comes in and works with you that they, they often if they're an established organization they can bring that finance to the table so you don't have to as the CLT and that's a, that's a real you know opportunity and um, for us and, and some of these ones where they are you know the CLT isn't even, even like initiating the projects there's a garden village in East Cambridgeshire that's you know Bellway Homes is building that and financing it very bog standard in, in many ways but the CLT will be buying the homes turnkey off the developer at the end and they've been involved throughout the whole process from the master planning through the development process to them buying them at the end and then stewarding them for the next 100 years so the financing challenge there for the CLT is just going to go to a bank and say we want to buy these homes and we're going to be renting them out and here's our business model and they've got lending for that that's not a problem um, do you see that as an, uh, a possible model that could be rolled out more broadly? Because I think one of the things um, you've mentioned is, you know, the, the CLT model points to kind of a system where communities don't have any say. So I guess if you could um, maybe talk about that a little bit. I mean, how does it work for how is it working for communities right now? What's wrong with it? And how could the CLT model you know, pave the way for something more inclusive? I read I read this these two figures recently quite startling but they they in a way they're maybe they're not very startling to anyone who's in the industry so the planning in the planning process fewer than one percent of people participate in the local plan consultations and only around three percent of people engage in any pre-planning consultation where they're specifically invited to so you know something's down the road from you, you get a letter for your door you can come along so basically in the current planning system the positive is obviously it is legally designed so that is accountable there are opportunities but almost nobody participates in it and then once the thing has planning permission often there's no real involvement for the community from that point on if you've got a large development what's increasingly happening is then the any shared facilities like the the, the park and the playground the, the community center and so on councils are less and less willing to adopt those and so they're being put into private management companies and then you've got companies you know, with the legal ability to charge residents estate charges that in some cases are pretty huge amounts of money with no accountability to the people who live there and no ability for the community to shape. Well, what do we want to do about the playgrounds? You know, we've got different ideas of maybe the play facilities are rubbish. I know you've got a real interest in um, the sort of the very gendered way in which development takes place and not thinking about the range of uses that people, you know. So at the moment, the way I see it is that communities have next to no role, no way to participate and no way to bring the value that they could bring to any bit of that process. So what could it look like if a CLT was involved? And then this is effectively happening in the case of Kennet, and I think this could be a model elsewhere. So the CLT is established at the very, when the, when the site is first allocated in the local plan, and they then worked with the landowner and the council on the master planning process. They got much more involvement from local people they had a vote of their membership at two stages to check in and say, do we think this is, do we think we want to be part of this? Is this heading in the right direction? Because it's hugely controversial, this garden village, right? And there's still an action group campaigning against it. So it's sort of, it's like a democratic 
litmus test. Do we still think this is right? And the majority of the CLT members said yes. So you've got a mandate to, to say the community is on board with this development. So they've had much more involvement in the planning bit. Then they form, they sit on the four-way development partnership. So the landowner, the council, the developer, which is Bellway Homes, and the CLT jointly oversee the development. And the CLT is now actively negotiating with Bellway over various details, including things like where the original plan was that all of the social housing be just built all along the main road and built first and then sold off to the housing association and the CLT. The CLT pushed back and said, no, that's not what the master plan says. You're going to spread this around the site. And so, you know, then the community is kind of actively basically improving the quality of the development through being involved in that. And then when it's completed, in place of the management company, that's what the CLT does. So the community will own all of the shared facilities. They'll own 60 of the affordable homes. And then they can democratically and collectively decide how do they manage these for ecology, for community development and so on and in a way it's quite a radical shift in the kind of power and the role of the local people but in another way it's from the point of view of people like say the landowner bellway the architects um who did the master planning and so on it's no different financially it's not very different and um, if you look at the way that stewardship arrangements are being set up on a lot of sites there's nothing particularly different about this from a financial point of view uh it it's just a sort of, it's in a way, it's like a technical governance tweak. For me, it's very fundamental because it's really saying, look, we live in this area. We have this, we have a stake in this land and we have a stake in this development. And the people who are moving into these homes have a stake in why they're paying an estate charge and who that's going to and so on. So give them control of it and give them the ability to really use that to, to build something better. And, you know, there's, there's tons of evidence around the increased social cohesion and social capacity and reduction of loneliness and better environmental outcomes, all this kind of stuff that comes from that kind of degree of participation and control in the community. What are the biggest uh, frustrations that you have um, in terms of uh, seeing those projects that fall by the wayside or, um, you know, kind of the lack of uh, widespread adoption or even frustrations around misconceptions around CLTs? I think probably the underlying frustration is something that maybe a lot of your readers and listeners would recognise as well. And sometimes it's hard to know how to deal with it because it's so systemic. It's just a very ingrained paternalism and a desire to control and like an unwillingness to share control and to collaborate. And we see this, you know, as professionals in lots of fields. It's, it's hard sometimes, isn't it, to collaborate and to, to form partnerships with people rather than just doing something all yourself. And... So with housing associations, for example, there are those housing, there's about there's a good, at least 40 of them now that are really actively partnering with CLTs and they say it was a real positive. But there are others, I think, that look at it and they worry about giving up control and whether that is going to hit their bottom line or you know undermine their ability to deliver what they want to do or it's kind of an identity thing sometimes. It's like, well, we do really good community engagement, so why do we need to do this? And I think it's just... When you when you try it, when you do it, and you kind of you're involved in some of these, the people often the people who work on these projects they say sometimes, God, that was a bit different and a bit hard work, but wow, it was rewarding and delivered something better than we, you know, much better than we see elsewhere. I think as, as people do it, they start to see how this kind of approach can work and how it can yield real benefits and be much more rewarding, and ultimately much better for society, you know, to sort of deliver better quality development. Um, but it's overcoming that kind of paternalistic instinct. 
And yeah. fear. I think it's fear too, because I think there's always that fear that engagement will equal protest and objection and it'll be hard work emotionally. <laughs> and, you know, there'll be negotiations and there'll be, um, there'll be uh, disappointment. Um, and in a way, you, you know, you kind of deliver something and run away quickly. <laughs> Maybe then, you know, there'll be somewhat of a different relationship um, that one is one of those less engaged. But like you said, there's so many benefits of, of, of even involvement in that and kind of going through that process, which is, you know, promises to be so much more fulfilling as an individual and as an organization, I would, I would imagine, but maybe you could um, <laughs> tell me. <laughs> I mean, I suppose one of our offers and our requests to people working in the industry is work with us to make it better. <laughs> so there are always interesting pioneering examples of, I mean, this, you know, this one with Ken at CLT and Bellway and East Cambridge District Council is sort of forging a new path. And we'll probably learn a lot from that and realize that mistakes were made and it could have been done better. Um, we've got much more of a track record of this with housing associations. And we know in some cases where people said, oh God, never again. <laughs> and, but what we've learned is that there's a role for these enabler hubs and advisors to sort of sit in between the community and the housing association to do a bit of translation you know, like language and and to ensure that the community group is a sort of well-run, robust organisation that the housing association has trust in and that's that the group, the community understands their role in the process and they can they can partner effectively. So we've kind of got to the point where we've made that partnership process much more constructive, much more of a positive experience for everybody than some of the kind of earlier examples. And I guess, you know, we're interested to try to figure out what are those patterns? How do we make that work in other circumstances? So we're not pretending that it's, it's you know, it's all Sunday uplands and everything's absolutely fine, but um, it's got to be worth trying to work these things through because it just feels to me you get a much better result than or you know you can get really interesting results uh, and particularly when it comes to things like the unaccountability of management companies or that level of resistance like I think most protest comes from powerlessness and a frustration that they're saying something they either don't understand why it's not more affordable or they don't they, they don't agree with some of the decisions that are being taken and they have no ability to influence it and you know, we've seen in think, some cases, certainly if you've given people that opportunity to participate, dif diffuses some of that anger and some of that participation and puts it in a more positive direction. And this idea of agency and then also ownership. I mean, there's so many of these common spaces that just kind of fall to ruin because they're not adopted by anyone. No one feels agency or ownership over that space, even if they are paying fees or paying rent. Um, and I think it's the sense of, you know, who does it and clarity around that, which I think the CLT can kind of help to alleviate. Yeah, there's this lovely phrase that somebody, um, Jess Steele from Heart of Hastings CLT uses of farming dereliction. So there's this building in the centre of Hastings, which has changed hands sort of 30 times in the last 30 years. And every time the, there's been a profit made in the transaction, but never to do anything with the building. It's just, <laughs> it's just basically making money off of updating a planning permission or you know doing something else to it but it's still their derelict so from the point of view of the local community it's just a blight on their town center what can you do about that and or even like you know if, if a large number of new homes are built on the side of your community it's kind of well, what's in it for us why why should we not why should we be supportive of this as opposed to just putting posters in our windows saying no more homes you know it's kind of bring, bring people in give them the ability to change things to feel they're going to get tangible benefits from it and they can steer it in a slightly more positive direction 
wanted to ask you about, I mean, we're in the middle of this um, energy price and cost of living crisis. And I want to ask you about retrofitting and whether you think there is or whether you have any examples of CLTs and, um, you know, retrofitting homes or energy efficient movements or heat networks um, and energy networks being part of the mix of things that they're working on. There is, there is some, but this is much more anecdotal sadly we haven't I'm kind of interested in whether we could see this happening much more widely across our network and also our network connecting up to other people coming at it from a retrofit point of view and thinking about community-led retrofit so there's there's an organization for example in Manchester called Carbon Co-op who've done quite a lot of work on a kind of community-led retrofit um but for, so there's a long history of CLTs and other community organizations in um low-value market areas with a lot of empty homes, buying up existing properties and retrofitting them, um, bringing them up, not just sort of bring them into use, but also making them much more energy efficient in the process. And then there's also the odd example, like there's an amazing project in East Cambridgeshire, the CLT that a few years ago had finished a project of some affordable homes working with a local housing association. And then they're sort of thinking, what next? You know, we've got some income, we've got an asset base, what do we want to do next? And they identified fuel poverty and the fact that they're, most of the homes in their village are dependent on oil as an interesting project to try to address. And so they are, they've gone through the process of, of doing feasibility work and getting funding and so on. And they're now close to completing the construction of a district heating system for their village using so solar powered ground source heat. Um, they're going to be able to connect up any member, any resident of the village that wants it. And they can then provide them with hot water uh, more cheaply than oil and you know, then also guard against some of the kind of you know increases. You know, they're not so exposed to commodity markets in in oil or gas or other things like that. And I, I think those kinds of things are really fascinating as to whether you can do that on a larger scale um, in in retrofit as well as new builds. We see that kind of stuff on the new build side of CLT activity, and we see it in retrofit of individual properties. But we haven't kind of seen neighbourhood scale retrofit. Um, I I think it's just an opportunity that needs some sort of pilots and funding, like get the thing going, do some proof of concepts. And then again, this idea that you've got, if you've got this CLT, you've got this muscle as a community, you could then go out and use it to do this kind of work. The puzzle is, the interesting, the interesting thing with retrofit is always, always financing, isn't it? So like, where, do you, where does the finance sit to pay for the works and how's that repaid out of bill savings or what have you? I know in the EU, they have kind of a solar community um, where you can come together as a community and do a solar project together. And I think you get mm. highly subsidized um, solar panel um, installation through it. But it's the same kind of idea where you, you know, you kind of club together as a community and you you basically start a power generation company. There are, I mean, there are quite a few community okay. power companies in the UK. And we've got a, and there's an organization called Community Energy England, which is kind of like our spot for energy. <laughs> which you know brings together these 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 communities um and there are community land trusts and similar organizations who have done energy stuff as well like the, there's one in bristol called ambitious lawrence ambition lawrence western which is installing the biggest wind turbine onshore wind turbine either in the biggest either the biggest in the uk or the biggest in europe and there's this lovely story that people said oh, you know don't don't people locally oppose it and, and the guy mark pepper who leads the organization is brilliant advocate for what they do this is a very deprived bit of Bristol. He said, well, they're getting money from it. <laughs> they're quite happy to get the income. They don't mind the fact that there's wind turbine near the, you know, they have more problems with the transport authorities because it's near a road or railway or what have you. But yeah, 
that's like a big earner for their community. So why wouldn't they want it? And that's going to help them in lots of ways. I wanted to ask you about kind of misconception, maybe a misconception, or there's a conception around community land trust that this is quite, you know, these these are quite middle class organizations. These are maybe affluent organizations. I mean, are they are they, you know, do they tend to be because you have to wrangle with planning applications and this kind of developer? Mm-hmm. Are they a representative mix of all communities? Are they happening everywhere, or do they tend to be in kind of more wealthy enclaves? And is there a way to kind of um, you know, make that more diverse? Or is that something that, you know, you're struggling with? Or actually, is it a complete misconception and, and all kinds of people are starting these trusts? It's a really, it's a, it's a good question. And it's definitely one I hear often from people. Um, and there's sort of a bit of truth and a bit of myth in it. So in terms of where CLTs are located, they are overrepresented in the most deprived parts of the country. They're also quite well represented in some of the areas with the greatest with like highest house prices and therefore greatest affordability problems. The people who are housed in CLT homes are people on low incomes. So you don't set a CLT up. You know, Christine and Tom, we don't set up CLT together to build our own home. (laughs) You wouldn't be able to do that. So if you're building affordable housing, it then has to be allocated to people in housing need. Um, And so they are meeting housing need in areas where there is significant deprivation and where there's significant unaffordability. So it's absolutely not a middle-class project in that sense. Um, in terms of who sets them up and leads them, we know a bit less about that, and we have been working on that. Um, we know that they're more anecdotally, and with some of the data we have, it is pretty mixed. And a lot of them in the deprived areas are being set up and run by people who are themselves, you know, kind of um, working class, very embedded in those communities. They're not just all set up by middle-class professionals. But there probably is a bit of an overabundance of architects and surveyors and retirees and so on in them because of, the, as you say, the barriers. And so to us, the solution is both doing what we've done quite purposefully, supported by organisations like M&G Investments and Power to Change to help CLTs be more inclusive and in how they you know, go into your community. You shouldn't just be basically set up as five people who are the kind of the great and the good of your community to do things on behalf of your community. You want to be getting out there and getting as many people as possible to participate more walks of life but it's also making the thing easier and so developing those forms of partnership which mean with with industry which mean you don't have to do everything yourselves you don't have to be raising finance you don't have to become a developer you know that also reduces the barriers um and so that's that's really where we see the potential for this to be much more commonplace like you know in my view this could easily just be 10 percent of the housing market in the uk because it's just changing the the relationship of communities to development it's not necessarily saying you want to set up hundreds and thousands of new property developers that happen to be community owned. I think that's really important because like you said, you know, the people that are going to live in these affordable housing, they are people who have housing need. They are, you know, in these kind of deprived communities. And maybe what's getting confused is the kind of idea of co-housing where a bunch of friends get together and develop homes for themselves and the difference between that and a community land trust. That's definitely a confusion. Yes. And then also in a way that's, a little unfair on co-housing. The, the reason that co-housing is very associated with very middle-class people is again because it's very hard to do that with an affordable housing project at, at the moment, but it's been getting easier. So there are more and more mixed tenure co-housing communities that are also, you know, from the sort of very wealthy end to social rent units um, and everything else in between. So the more the more we can get these kind of concepts understood in industry and adopted in the way that people can see that they could, you know, if you're bring, if you're involved in a strategic site make a plot available for a co-housing community, 
think about CLT as the stewardship vehicle for the whole site, as the community engagement vehicle for the whole site, bring those ideas into the mix. And then it's no longer a, you know, the co-housing doesn't just have to be for middle-class people. The, the CLT could be led by, you could then look to include and involve a wide range of people from the local community in it. You can kind of overcome some of those issues. And you start to give citizens a role in in <laughs> their, in in the, the redevelopment of their area and the homes they live in and so on. It sounds like utopia. Is it utopia when they're done and everyone lives there? Or is this um, a stewardship model that basically is robust to kind of weather the natural neighborhood storms or more robust? Uh, I suppose at the individual level of each project, it's only as robust as the governance of the CLT or the co-housing community itself. there's some interesting work done on CLTs in the United States, where a lot of them have been running longer than in the UK, and they have been much more robust than any other housing model through economic downturns, and particularly because they have such a focus on genuine affordability. They've got a very low foreclosure rate of people who have home ownership through them. They have been a very, very low failure rate of CLTs themselves because they are, in a sense, sort of embedding low risk in their in their model. Um, we see even in the development phase, it's, it's actually lower risk often to go with a CLT than not, because you're more likely to get planning permission. You're more likely to get the community on board with what you're doing. Um, but it's not, I mean, it's not necessarily utopia, but it, there's definitely good evidence that the government commissioned LSE recently to look at experiences of loneliness and social cohesion. And they looked at a range of co-housing communities and CLTs and so on. And they just find, well, you do get more, it's kind of obvious, really, isn't it? But there's at least there's a you know, proper academic uh, review of it. People get more involved in things. And if people get more involved in things, they make friendships and they make connections with one another and they feel more empowered and more happy about their area. And so you get that outcome. You get a better community because you've involved people in the process. And, you know, we know this if forms of good, right at the start of this conversation, if you do good community engagement, one of the outcomes is better design. But one of the other outcomes is the community is happier with it. And if you give communities the extra degree of control and ownership, you take that a bit further. So it's it's not necessarily utopia, but it's just seeing a real, you know, like what is the purpose of regeneration? Is the purpose building stronger communities that are economically, socially, environmentally resilient and sustainable? And if that's the case, then the CLT is an ideal part of the solution. Tom, I'm just going to thank you for talking to me today. That was really super interesting and it was really great to hear more about CLT and the work that you're doing. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Our podcast is produced by Simon Mercer with music by Fortet. If you like what you hear, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash thedeveloperuk. You can sign up to our newsletter on our website, thedeveloper.live, and check out our live events on making more sustainable and equitable places at festivalofplace.co.uk. Thanks a lot. See you next time.